<clears throat> I don't expect very many of us here will be running races in the Olympic Stadium in a couple of weeks' time. But um, when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, we have a picture of ancient athletics which may possibly shock you. Picture the scene. <clears throat> it's a, a stadium somewhere in southern Europe, and the date is around about 60 AD. The place is absolutely crammed full of cheering supporters, and the athletes are straining every nerve and pulling on every muscle in order to win the race. Oh, what's shocking about that? Well, you see, the athletes, who are all men, by the way, are stark naked. They've got not a stitch on because they have thrown aside everything. They've stripped off in order to win the race. Now, I, I suspect that track dress code in London in a few weeks' time is going to be slightly less abandoned. But nevertheless, there's going to be that passionate longing to win. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And it comes, of course, after chapter 11. And Dan was taking you through chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago. I envy him because that chapter, chapter 12, is it's, it's just full of tremendous encouragement. It's, it's a procession of the great heroes and heroines of faith. They're all there, marching in front of us. And I like to think of them encouraging me to follow them in the way of faith. And I say to them, well, I'm feeble and weak. And they say, so were we, and God can use your inadequacy just as he used ours. And they beckon me to follow them into the stadium and they take their seats and start cheering me on and there am I down on the running track. I'm not going to take all my clothes off, don't worry. Because you're there too. You're in the, the lanes as well, running with me. And we are keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one on whom faith depends from beginning to end. It's a wonderful picture. And it's the one that the writer to the Hebrews gives us in chapter 12. And he says, consider him in verse 3, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that, of course, is the center of the letter to the Hebrews. That's the one central message. I must have preached no end of sermons blathering along for 40 years. What a lot of hot air. I wonder if anyone can remember anything I said. Well, three little words. Never give up. Never give up. If you can remember that, you've got the whole of the letter to the Hebrews. Well, not quite the whole, but you've got the real punchline. Again and again and again and again and again. It's never give up. 
Cast not away your confidence. It has great recompense and reward. For after you have done the will of God, you will receive what he promised. You need to persevere. You need to keep on. Keep on keeping on. That's the picture that Hebrews gives us. Going on in the chapter, um, the writer says, of course, we all need to be disciplined. We all need to be trained, don't we? Um, Well, Paul boasted, so why shouldn't I? Um, When I was at the gym last week, there I was. My knees were uh, complaining. I was ignoring them. Because I thought to myself, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Nothing is ever lost in God's economy. Nothing is ever lost. Verse 12, therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? I'm sure all the um, uh, people at the gym, the, um, the experts at the gym would, would, would absolutely agree with the writer to the Hebrews. Strengthen your feeble, knees and weak, or your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Come on. And then we have a reference to Esau. Now, I, I always feel sorry for Esau, desperately sorry, really. You remember the story, don't you? How Jacob stole the blessing from his brother. But Esau is a picture of someone who doesn't really take God seriously because he sold his birthright to fill his stomach. And in verse 17, it says, afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And in the story in the Old Testament, there's that moment where Isaac says, your brother has stolen the blessing. And Esau says, bless me even also, O my father. An exceedingly great and bitter cry. But it's no good. So Esau stands as a warning. Don't make a fool of God. Don't play fast and loose with him. And then we come to verse 18, and it's really verses 18 to 24 that I want to highlight this morning. Um, I would have dealt with verses 25 to 29 as well, but there wasn't time in the 9.30 service, so we'll deal with those next week. Two sections, two headings I want to give you. Verses 18 to 21 are all about what we will not encounter in God's presence. And verses 22 to 24 are about what we will encounter in God's presence. So first of all, what we won't encounter in God's presence. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. I'm sorry, verse 18, sorry, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard them begged that no further word should be spoken to them, because they couldn't bear the the command that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. 
It's a, a, a terrible picture. The mountain so holy that it can't be touched. The only light to penetrate the surrounding darkness from the fire that issued at its summit as the storm raged all around. That, that terrible sound that struck dread into their hearts, the trumpet blast and the command that if anything, even an, an animal should, be touched, uh, should touch the mountain, it must be immediately stoned to death. And then Moses himself standing there. Moses, the man of God, trembling from head to foot. Not a very pleasant prospect. But it's not metaphorical. All these things really happened. And they happened for a reason. This bunch of former slaves had to be forged into a nation. And they had to learn important lessons about God. That you can't play fast and loose with him. You see, there's a warning in Hebrews. Don't play fast and loose with God. Don't make the almighty the almighty. He isn't the almighty. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To realize that he is in charge. Well, all that's good stuff. And we need to learn it and take note of it if we're to grow in the Christian life. But it's not the whole story. So let's, let's go on to what we will encounter in God's presence. Verses 18 to 21 are the old covenant. What God did in the old dispensation before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to the new covenant. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Do you believe in angels, friends? I hope you do. Because the Bible is quite clear about their existence. A minister, a friend of mine, an elderly gentleman, used to say that if something was mentioned once in the Bible, it's important. If it's mentioned twice, it's very important. If it's mentioned three times, it's extremely important. And we ignore it at our peril. Well, angels are mentioned 375 times in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they are mentioned more than the words love and grace and peace. It's quite a thought, isn't it? So they're important. Now, some of the New Testament Christians made the mistake of worshipping angels and inquiring um, too far into what they were and why they were there. Well, if you want to know why they're there, look at the final verse of chapter 1. It's very simple. Hebrews chapter 1. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? That's what they're there for. Now, I believe that we are not encountering angels in a kind of material form as much now as God's people did in the past because we're children of the Enlightenment. We've had the supernatural stuffing knocked out of us and I think that, to some extent, is a great shame. But it's the culture in which we have grown up. And I think if we were seeing angels all over the place, we wouldn't be able to cope with it. It's not so in the Muslim world. It's very interesting when you hear testimonies of Muslims who have become Christians. They see many more visions 
They have many more dreams. They have many more appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. I envy them. But I think the reason is, as I say, we are children of the Enlightenment. We have grown up in the scientific culture that, uh, that we have. And it's almost as if our uh, supernatural antennae have been snipped off. It's a great shame. But the Bible is quite clear. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. One of our tradition's own missionary heroes, John Payton, had great cause to thank God for those ministering spirits. One night, his mission station in the New Hebrides, a set of islands in the South Pacific, in the 19th century, was besieged by hostile tribesmen. Peyton and his family prayed earnestly to be protected, and sure enough, the tribesmen didn't attack. And a year later, the chief was converted if he became a Christian. And Peyton asked him why they hadn't burned the mission station down. And the chief replied, they were too afraid to attack because of all those shining warriors with drawn swords who were standing on guard. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Well, in verse 23, again, we find what we encounter in the presence of God. The church of the firstborn, verse 23. The church of the firstborn. And that's the way the writer uses to refer to every faithful believer of every age. Now, it may seem strange because we're still in the body, but we're already part of the church of the firstborn. Did you know that? You may be a member of Linfield United Reformed Church, but you are also, and I think this is really exciting, you are also a member of the church of the firstborn. Now, how do we know that? Because it says their names are written in heaven. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, your name is written in heaven. If you come to church this morning and you get nothing out of this sermon at all, I'm sure you'll get wonderful things out of the testimonies that we've heard, particularly Daphne's. It was lovely to hear it. Remember that. Your name is written in heaven. Your name is there because the Lord Jesus Christ died for you. And we come to, the, to, to God, the judge of all men. But we have no need to fear in the wrong way, as, verse, as uh, Romans 3.26 says, he is both just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. When he died on the cross, there was that incredible exchange, his righteousness for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think I've shared with you before, friends, that I preached on that when I was 24, when I was um, ordained. And, uh, 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 well, I guess he was a dear old gentleman, really. He, you know, we've got to forgive these these uh, weighty friends, dear old gentleman, he wrote to my senior minister and he said, will you stop that young man preaching bibliolatry and medieval theology? And I'm still preaching it. And I just praise the Lord that it's God's word. When he hung up on the cross, he was taking my sin. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that fantastic? All those regrets you've got, 
All those things you wish you'd never done, you wish you'd never said, all those wrong choices you've made, all the things that grab at you and make you feel wretched. He took every last vestige and he gave you his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, so that as you stand before God, you stand sinless and holy in his presence. Now the devil doesn't want you to believe that. And he will do all he can to shake your faith in the center of the gospel. But remember it. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And don't worry, righteous ladies, you're there as well. I checked on the Greek, and it's not a gender-specific word. It means righteous people. And then we come to the best news of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember the story? When Cain killed Abel, God said, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And God answered with another question, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And it was crying for vengeance, wasn't it? That was the message of the blood of Abel. What is the message of the blood of Christ? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Christ cries out for forgiveness. As I say, we'll tackle verses 25 to 29 next week. But I don't think there could be a better message when you come to church, it's not just your fellow Christians with whom you share fellowship. You are surrounded, we are surrounded by thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, or as the authorized version has it, in festal array. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And there couldn't be better news than that.